So it's been a, a few weeks that uh, we left our in the middle of Sermon on the Mount and Lord's Prayer. Learning to pray was a part of a, a mini-series within the Sermon on the Mount series. So I think it's appropriate to, to have a, a quick recap, especially for those of you who are visiting with us. <clears throat> the theme verse of Matthew 5, 6, 7, Sermon on the Mount, is Matthew 6, 8, when Jesus said, Do not be like them. Do not be like who? And obviously, Jesus also meant the worldly people, the secular people, unbelievers, yes. But he also meant deliberately to not be like those who are religious Pharisees and Sadducees in, in their time. So it is, it is very relevant to us because when you look at the world, the world is continually drifting away from God, but the church and the so-called self-professing Christians may not be really what Christ wants, uh, desires us to follow. So we are to be radically different from not only secular people, but the Christian culture and Christian cult people within the church itself because of secularization of the church. He starts with heart. Heart, it has a lot to do with the central uh, theme of uh, Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, whenever we say heart, even today, the Western heart has a lot to do with seed of emotion. So my heart aches, and uh, you, you, you will say, uh, my mind or my, heart, my head meant more cognitive, conceptual uh, seed, Western definition-wise. And then emotion is separate. But the, but the biblical heart is more of a center of a one whole person in which we have not only the cognitive mental capacity, but emotional uh, feelings and volitional will all together. And he starts with heart, the inner person of our life. We are to be radically different in relation to character. The real transformation begins inside out, not outside in. You don't fix and change the behaviors hoping that that change will last. Behavior modification is exactly just that. You change and clean up on the outside. And Jesus' words was, clean the inside of a cup, not just outside. The, the real problem is coming outside, inside out. So ch change begins inside out. So in terms of character, we are to be radically different. Second, 
In relation to the world, we are to be radically different as salt and light. Salt has a uh, the side that bites because of preventive or uh, preventing the any kind of decay. Because when that happens, the effect of salt might not be sweet. And Jesus didn't call us to be sugar of the world. Salt bites. And the light of, of, the, of the world, meaning that when people see, they see the character and glory of God in our deeds. So we are to be continually be not just uh, thinking about good things, but living out good deeds so that so we are to be radically different in relation to the world. Thirdly, we are to be radically different from moral righteousness. So moral righteousness has a lot to do with what's happening within our hearts. Uh, Pharisees' approach was keep the law on the externals. You shall not kill, kill. As long as I don't kill anybody, I have not sinned. Therefore, I'm morally righteous. That was the posture the Pharisees had. And Jesus said, I say to you, anyone who has anger, very vicious anger toward, toward one of the uh, brothers and sisters, you have already murdered. Anyone who has lustful intent, looking onto a woman, has already committed adultery. The moral righteousness has change of real transformation of the heart. And including the distortion that Pharisees made in order for them to keep the law, love your neighbor. What if I don't like some of my neighbors? So the distinction, distinction they made was, well, by neighbor, God means Hebrews. Hebrews who worship God, keep Sabbath, and keep Passover. Anyone who's outside, quote-unquote, non-Jews and Gentiles, foreigners, immigrants, are not our neighbors. So love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They came up with man-twisted law. And Jesus, to which Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemy. There's an unspoken sentence that he said. Actually, those people whom you call enemies is actually your neighbors as well. So moral righteousness, we are to be moral from inside out. And all this is not pointing to the unbelievers who are seeking for relationship with God and salvation in Christ Jesus. He's not saying these are prescriptive laws that so that you may keep the law and so that you may become saved. No, this is indicative portraits of God's citizens, God's kingdom, the citizens of God's kingdom 
if you are true citizens of God's kingdom, you will live like this. So it's a not prescriptive but descriptive. And the whole Sermon on the Mount is like that. And in, isn't it interesting? Um, Jesus doesn't divide religious life and loving God and loving others. Holy and sacred life versus secular life. To which we could do that so easily. The compartmentalization of our Christian walk. And today is the passage actually. Um, not only the religious righteousness, which is uh, spiritual practice. The, the reason why it's termed that way. So we don't really think of it as religious practice and religious righteousness. He mentions about these three commonly practiced spiritual disciplines among all Israelites, including Pharisees and uh, Sadducees as well. Starting with almsgiving, helping and giving to the needy and poor, and prayer and fasting. And he talks about how we are to be radically different in that. Religious righteousness. Or spirit, in our spiritual practices. We are to do it with genuine heart. In some sense, it's in secrecy because God who sees, our Father who sees, in, uh, sees us in secret will reward us. In another sense, even we are doing communally and praying communally, our Father when you are in heaven, we are to do it with a genuine, authentic attitude and posture rather than to be seen and to be recognized by others. But Jesus doesn't compartmentalize. So actually, okay, this is it. My lesson is over. Sermon is done. Go live. He actually delves right into very, very worldly topic, money and possessions. Have you ever thought about that? So any, anybody who's been to church long enough have a little bit of a pet peeves when pastors talk about money and, oh, it's a building campaign again. It's about tithing again. Uh, let me just keep, assure you, right? There is no campaign. There is no missions funding, fund giving. And there is no stress on your tithing at all today. So relax. Put your guards down, okay? <laughs> but let's think about why Jesus taught about money and positions so often. Did you know that 16 out of 38 Jesus parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. Bible teaches and contains about 500 verses on the subject of prayer. But on the subject of money and possessions, there are more than 2,000 verses. Uh, the founder of a crown 
uh, ministries who's they're focusing on uh, being a good steward of God's money and possessions. He wrote about, he found about 2,300 some verses in PDF, and it's available online. But obviously, not every word has a word money or possessions, but it will have allusions or implications or principles of managing your money well and teaching your children money well, about money well too. So, <clears throat> does that mean that money is so important to Jesus? No, he owns the world. In the, the Old Testament, God owns the sheep and the flocks on a thousand hills, right? And he owns the stars and moons and everything that we own belongs to him. So his concern is how money, which is a necessity, can affect us in everyday life. Money is one of those things that uh, I don't want to do, live out. Some Buddhists and the people who are separatists actually have done that. But our mission as a Christian, we are to go into the world. We're not of the world, but we are in the world. Jesus didn't ask the Father to take us out of the world. The reason is money is often number one cause of our marital conflict. So you could think about, when was the last time I thought about the, uh, for, for male, typical married, sex is important to me. Sexual satisfaction is important to me. A known, known fact, right? But rarely couples talk about, I mean, number one reason for their marital conflict is sex. Lack of sex, there's a dissatisfaction. Because when you're baby, when you have a toddlers and babies running around, last thing your wife has in her mind is sex. So leave alone, it's okay. But when, even in that life stage, when the money is the problem, not just the lack of it, but how to use it and, and what principle we use it, and you gave it to your mom, how much for her birthday? And but you gave it to my mom, so my and you know, you didn't do anything. What is wrong with you? And that's how how it begins, and which will lead it lead it to not only infidelity and divorce and stress and health and suicide, crime and sibling conflict. And lawsuits. If there is no such a thing, money, lawyers will go bankrupt. Because <laughs> the lawsuits is basically about all about money. How should we look at the money? And the first thing that I think we need to do is we need to come out of denial. We need to admit that money is a, such a powerful force in our everyday life. Uh, a decade ago, Money Magazine 
said in a big letter, money has become the new sex in this country. A bumper sticker, sticker says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Hence the American people who work have to report to work every day. But Jesus uses this to contrast. He talks, he begins to talk about two treasures. Well, actually, two places for treasures. And then two visions, two type of an eye. And then he talks about two type of hearts and serve service. So which will give us a very clear guideline at least generally to pointing pointing to the to our uh, family life and our personal finance and as a church as well here's a, a first question that we should ask so in terms of those three comparisons maybe it might be a good idea to ask these questions three questions number 1 the first question is where should i lay up treasures for myself where, I, where should I store up? Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Negative command and positive command. Let's start with that negative command prohibition. And Jesus says, don't lay up for yourself, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. Why? Remember, and when we read the Bible, we need to submit to its authority. The submitting authority, the first thing that we need to do is, instead of we think that we know what he's saying, pay attention. Just obvious things, we need to make an observation. His reason, Jesus' reason is, it is not secure on earth. And it does not last because of moth and rust and thieves and, and death happens and even the most uh, the wealthiest person on earth when he or she goes he takes nothing cannot take anything but let's make another observation so we may not read into the text and thinking that this passage is all about not owning and not even saving anything. This prohibition is not about saving for a rainy day, a retirement plan, life insurance, saving for your college, a kid's college, especially if they ha happen to 
perform well enough to go to a private school, Ivy League school. Your vacation money, your sick money. I read through the scripture. It's obvious. And when even uh, the Proverbs talks about learn from ant, meant the diligent work so that you could prepare for the season that we don't, you don't have anything. So it's not about that. But it is about greed, essentially. More and extravagant and luxurious living. And Stansted calls it selfish accumulation of goods. Materialism which tethers our hearts to earth. Can we make another observation? Do not lay out for yourselves. This laying up is not for your children. It's not for your, your aging mom and dad. It's not for the poor. It's not for the church. It is for your own luxurious standard of living. I, I love you guys. So I, I want to be firm as well as gentle I do have a fatherly heart spiritual father I'm not that old um, <laughs> and begin, to begin with our family to live in Orange County unless we wake up with this verse every morning reminding ourselves and how e easy it is to become like a frog in the cattle being slowly heated up. The Orange County's culture, normative culture, is affluence and comfort. And there is a borderline and, and, and the, the gray area in that. You work hard and then you eat. The benefit of your hard work is biblical concept. A nice house and safe environment, and your children enjoy things. So those are good things, but there is a somewhere in that line the greed happens. We become a servant to the affluence and our comfort. That's what Jesus is teaching against it. Do not lay up. Do not store up. Do not become covetous. It is idolatry to love anything more than God. And that's a hard message for us. Will I go for a bigger bank account and better paying job versus serving God and seeking God's community? Can we choose this first? I will not lay up for myself treasures in heaven. I mean treasures in earth. If we don't do this, sisters and brothers, starting with me, we will act like, God, tell me something I don't know. I know. I love God more. 
And I, I need to, but you know, we live in, I, I live in, the, in this world. So my, my, my kids need, we need a better house, we need a bigger house. Our kids are growing. That could be preoccupation. Our primary passion of life, which God is warning against us through this passage this morning. The positive command is to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Contrastingly, why? It is secure there. It lasts forever because there is no moth and uh, rust and thieves. And I should say, no death. No more dying there. But once again, obvious observation. We need to make it clear because uh, Martin Luther, during Reformation days, He's right. Wherever gospel is preached and people begin to take this Christian life seriously, two of biggest enemies. One is a false teaching. The teachers will, will come up and twist is the gospel. The second is greed. He calls it sir greed. It sneaks into us and stays takes us away from right living. And one of those very things what Martin Luther talks about is today's prosperity gospel, false teaching on what it means to seek God's blessing. See, the same worldly value, and then apply this passage, it looks like this. Oh, you're going to die anyway. Don't invest here. You could invest in heaven. The bank, bank account in heaven is a 100% guarantee. So whenever you see poor people, whenever you have a good deeds, and you do good deeds, and then your bank account rises. The selfish, selfish motive, and in, in the, some sense is that actually in the meantime, God will continue to bless you materialistically. You will have wealth and health. And without shame, they will claim some things like uh, preachers will claim that as a children of king of kings, we should live like prince and princess. And they will wear bling everywhere. <laughs> and pray and even dare to ask for, donate, your money, so for the gospel ministry can happen, $60 million for private jet so that I could go places. It is absurd. We need to become aware of that. At the same time, that kind of cultural norm, and sometimes people make fun of it, but we still want to make our lives prosperous materialistically so we could think about initially if we are not if we are not careful uh, doing this 
transaction deal with God. Well, I gave it to I gave it to the Olive Crest, such such number, not money. I give tithing to church. I give this this to. So I, I'm entitled to to enjoy my luxurious things in in my life, and the God you will give me heavenly reward. No, oh, that's not it. Whenever we think about Sermon on the Mount, we should think about. Radically different person in whose life the radical difference begins with the heart. When you think about heart, what is the most glaringly different difference in anybody? Value. Value difference. What is most important to me because of Christ and because of Scripture must be transformed. To what God cares. Why? Because we are doing religious duty? No. Because what God cares is really the truly good things. That we will eat the harvest of God's goodness. Forever and eternally. So we don't become the flip-flopping Christians who's mad at God when we are not getting answers in terms of materialistic or health-wise, or who's so praise, uh, full of praise and thanksgiving when God provides. Our bank account goes up and we have a better job and our children are doing well. God is not a means to our end. God is the creator. He's a sovereign, sovereign meaning that he could do anything. He is doing everything in, on, in his own will. No one can stop him. And our trust and faith in the midst of all this to believe that God is our Abba and he's always consistently absolutely good beyond our imagination. And because of this teaching is so powerful if we surrender to that. So it is about seeking a different value attitude, which results in radically different lifestyle. And I was kind of amazed. Um, Pastor Chris, Chris Crossan, our uh, retreat speaker, at the end of our, our retreat during lunchtime, and I mentioned about honorarium, and we would love to uh, express our gratitude to you. And he absolutely denied. I don't need it. Our church this weekend is paying for, for my ministry. Just because I don't preach that Sunday, that doesn't mean that I don't have a pay. So I'm already covered. You guys use it. So Wade trained me pretty good on that. So I, even, I knew what I was going to come up with, right? So listen, Chris. Unless God challenges us to become generous, we will never learn to live a Christian life the way God desires us. So do not take this ministry away from us. We will give it to you. And whatever that you do with that money, honorarium, is your ministry. So you've gave in. LAUGHTER 
And I got an email. He says, thank you so much. He, I, he didn't expect that much. And then he lists out what he wants to do with that money. With this money, we could send some of our kids, at-risk kids from addiction, drug addiction family to summer camp. With this money, we could do more, provide more uh, extra food at our picnic. With this money, so all about, nothing is spent on him. You ask me why. Because he's trying to impress me? Not at all. It's a personal email with him and me. It's different value. I see so much joy in that. And that's the heartbeat of this passage. But in order to, for that to happen, we need to ask question number two. I'm sorry. Before we do question number two, we do need to, to uh, make some application. What does it look like when you lay off treasures in heaven? What, what does that mean? Before that, in the context was, I wanted to provide some scriptures. 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and it is worse than unbeliever. So hard work, pos- uh, possession of things, is not only biblical, but uh, we are to become even generous to our, our relatives, not to Sonia household members. Luke twelve fifteen points to the other way. And he said, Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How about 1 Timothy 6, 17? As for the rich in this present day age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So what does it mean? Practically, laying up for ourselves with treasures in heaven. Uh... It is not about having the same old worldly attitude, but it also it means broadly refers to where our heart ought to be in terms of something that lasts even in heaven. For example, cultivating, reading scripture and praying and Christ-likeness because we are the one, our soul will go to heaven the materialistic cannot come, but the Christ-like character will come with us. That will last forever. Serving and reaching others for Christ, anything that we do in, in our genuine motive to glorify God will last forever. That includes giving, yes. But more specifically, in this context, Jesus talks about use of our money for God's glory. By Christian cause, I don't mean just the church only. The 
the type of things that God would tell us would continually urge us to serve with. The poor around us in Santa Ana, uh, the, the organizations like Olive Crest, Clean Water for Old Vision, our church life as a communal church and the God's community together, for the missions, for the unchurched, unreached people groups. So that much is clear, right? Okay, now, the question number two is, how does my view of money and positions affect my attitude and life? So with that in mind, the question in mind, I gave you, gave you enough hint. And let's read 23 and 20 verse, verses 23 and 20, 22 and 23, if that makes sense. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full, will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the, the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus obviously does not talk about physical, literal eye, but he talks about here, our vision, perspective. If you see things right in your heart, in your attitude, and your life, and your deeds will follow. But if, you heart, if your perspective is wrong, you will go the other way. What God desires is this way, and you, you will go the other way. Okay, let's compare then. What does it look like? Starting with right view, good eye. Uh, I jot down some things uh, that I think it's right view from biblical standpoint. This life is not all, but transient. It's temporal. Because of that, we know that earth, earthly existence is a temporal existence. In heavenly existence in our lives will be eternal existence. Consequently, our attitude from which that uh, right view, we could say, I will see money in light of eternity and in God's purposes. It makes sense, right? Secondly, money is a necessity of life. Money itself is not bad and it's not evil. But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil from which we could uh, have a right attitude and right deeds. I will love and serve God single-mindedly being vigilant against materialism. Loving money, loving money and possessions. Thirdly, where my money is, there my heart will be also from which we could apply, I will use money as a measure of my true discipleship and worship and loyalty to Christ. So it's not separate. My, my checking account, my expenditure, the way that I use money will show where my heart is. 
And God, have mercy on us. Americans, it's number one is our entertainment, food and entertainment that consumes our lives. And no wonder our kids are consumed with entertainment, Lat, you know, including our boys and even celebrating our birth birthdays. The kids look down and, and their excuse is they're playing games together interconnected, right? Fourth and lastly, what I own is not mine. I'm a steward of God's money. I'm a manager. The real owner is God. God has given me this money. So it's not to be sinned that God made you, gave you a big house, and you know, you're wealthy in comparison, at least within our church. You might not be a billionaire. But you are steward. How will I use this money as a manager because my master in some day will give an account with how, how I spent and managed his money and my time and my talent, all that too. So from which we can apply, I will seek to do temporal activities that render eternal dividends. So on that note, I want to encourage you and affirm you. It was incredible for, for me to just watch our congregation respond to the missions month. And 27 families, my friends, pastor friends are blown away because 27 families giving 33,000, more than 33,000. You, you, you do the math. Like, ah, that's incredible. Oh, the important thing is not one family gave half of it or 80% of it. Rich person could do that, right? Our church don't have that kind of rich person. We, we have well-off families. But <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. As your, as your pastor, I'm proud of you that your Christ followership and discipleship is true. You're learning to walk confidently in God's provision. Third and last, I need to rush through this a little bit because we have too many other things coming up. Third question is, why can't I love both God and money? This is a, such an American question, isn't it? What's wrong with fun? I love God, but I like... The youth group used to get asked that all the time. So nothing wrong with the fun. Nothing wrong with the money. But the question that we should ask is in light of this answer. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either will, he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one, to the one, and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Sometimes when we read a simple sentence like this, we sometimes read into it, it's not wise to love. It's not wise to serve God and money. No. The passage is very blatantly simple. It is impossible for anyone to serve God and money. One against, works against the other. That's the nature of it. Why is that? The word serve here is a slave word. 
slavery word. Doulas, meaning that when you are slavery, a slave, you belong to your master. You are his or her property, and your master is one. That your time is not yours, but your master's. So in that sense, worship and adoration and loving, we cannot do both. It will be obviously lying to ourselves. And the prosperity gospel, a lot of times, made that possible for our generation. And our heart is divided when we want both end, which is idolatry. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10 clarifies even more for us. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And we should hear this admonition to us. And I, I have a lot on my mind, but I think to, to keep it simple so we may apply what we have heard, um, I have one quote and two applications. John Piper writes, which is very helpful to us, there is something about God and money that makes them tend to mastery. Either you are mastered by money and therefore ignore God or make him a bellhop for your business or you're mastered by God and make money a servant of, of the kingdom. But if you neither tries to master you while you're mastered by the other, you will hate and despise it. This is why Jesus said it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Much money makes a cruel master. Two applications. Number one, we are to be vigilant against the materialism and lures of extravagant, luxurious living, which is epitome of American dream, right? American dream is not a Christian dream. We are to be radically different from that and ask these couple of questions that I ask myself. And I urge you to ask yourself, do I have a right view, right attitude, and right investment of money? Am I being watchful of the power and lures of affluence and comfort which will lead me to lay up treasures in the wrong places? The vigilance is much needed for any, any of us in this room. Secondly, we are to invest our money and positions in temporal activities that render, sorry about that, eternal dividends, loving and serving God wholeheartedly. So husband and wives, you should talk to each other. It's not because, that's the one of the reasons why I, I want us to, have a clear motive. It's not we're giving because you want to be recognized. We don't even have an offering time because of that reason. 
We don't publish how much you know, our elders are protecting me from knowing anything who gives how much. Our offering box is back there. And I respect you and challenge you to continually do the things that Christ commands you to do. And not just, not just that. Our church has that ministry for the poor and other things, missions as well. But as you see to it, although uh, you don't act like a, you're the master of the money and, and you, you divide uh, to who to give, the control of giving is a bad idea. But more than what you're giving, above and beyond, you see the people who are in need, you see the missionaries, you see the poor people, you give generously, cheerfully. And you are laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. May God continually lead us in our church to live a different, radically different value system.